Welcome to the Digital Health Putting People First podcast series brought to you by IPOSI, the Irish platform for patient organizations, science and industry. This series will feature experts on the benefits and challenges of digital health solutions with a view to determining their impact on the future of healthcare in Ireland. Today, we're joined by Garma Kriesta to talk about lessons learned from the COVID tracker app and the importance of trust and confidence between citizens and government. Thanks for joining us, Gar. Why don't you introduce yourself to us? Glad to be here, Derek. Thank you. Um, so my name is Garma Kriesta. I work as a digital advisor in the office of the CIO inside of the HSE. Um, which basically means I work for the chief information officer and stuff that pops up that uh, looks hard or difficult or weird or doesn't fit naturally into the kind of things that the HSE does. I've managed to pick up a lot of that kind of work over the past, particularly over the past 18 months, including COVID Tracker, which uh, ended up being an app, but didn't start out as an app. To kick off the interview, I asked Gar what he has learned from the pandemic in terms of how the Irish health system can adopt digital health solutions that meet the expectations of the general public and patients? Yeah, I, I guess there's probably a number of different ways to answer that question. And actually, I actually don't know if I have a really good answer to it, but it's certainly an area that I'm keenly focused on. Because if so, if you start with um, things like health policy, so if you start there in that we, so there's, there's an issue or there's some, um, say it's for a chronic disease or something like that, I've got an issue and I'm trying to frame policy around that. So framing policy around that is a challenging thing because you're trying to describe something to um, to reach an outcome or create an outcome that you're looking for. You're now asking people to try and layer in this other thing, which is how do I rethink some of these things with technology in mind as I'm beginning to define policy? So up until a certain point, we were doing things where maybe it was at an information level, we were looking at better quality information to do it. But actually, as you begin to layer in different technologies or different ways of achieving the same goal, then it, it takes a, it's quite a difficult thing to be able to, to do at the moment because we're kind of at this in-between piece. So we haven't, we're, we're not at a point where this is tried and tested and policy is usually for things that are tried and tested. So you're starting with something that like I know and it's been proven elsewhere and there's a, a huge evidence base. With some of this stuff, we're like it is exploring and experimenting and there are things coming up. I think the other side of it is on the flip side, patients and the public broadly are playing much more a part in actually solving their own problems with technology. So if you take everything from, um, I don't know if you have uh, some kind of wearable device, but if I take uh, my watch and the stuff that it does and my watch interacting with the phone and a bunch of other things, and obviously I'm geeky enough that I will go and play and do, do things with this. And that's kind of part of my job. But the amount of people who are actually solving their own problems with technology to be able to inform themselves on it, that has to be borne in mind as we begin to think about what, like where where this is going and how we will do something about it. It's so you get through policy into implementation pieces about how do we actually take something that's grown organically and kind of um, at different paces at different speeds. How do we take what's happened over the past forty years in this country with relation to health and technology? And how do you layer in some of these new ideas? Isn't there's no straight line answer to it? And I think the problem is that. Like that's never a satisfactory answer to a patient, a member of the public or uh, or anybody else who's interested in an answer to that is that this is a series of compromises. It's a series of trade-offs. It's a series of hard choices that people have to make to make some progress towards a goal. 
but it's not like uh, you can just turn a switch and everything magically gets fixed. It doesn't. Like there's there's an awful lot of work in the middle and there's an awful lot of work that people don't see. So stuff under the hood that will pay benefits down the road. So you take something like the IHI, so the Individual Health Identifier. So the Health Identifier, so we've got an ACT, we've got an Identifier, we've got the ability to give an ID to somebody. That's critical piece of public health infrastructure to be able to do something with that. Some of these things are, it's layers and layers as you're going through it, but the, so the, it's it's contributing to a bigger picture, but it's not, uh, n- nothing solves it absolutely. And I think that's the illusion that there is, there is always in somebody's head a silver bullet. And if only we could do this or in some other, and you pick industry X and you apply it to healthcare and you say, take industry X and look how they do it and do it here. It's like, hmm. So if you take like, uh, um, so near misses. So who does near misses? Well, the airline industry do near misses. So they do near misses maybe once a week, right? The healthcare industry does near misses multiple times every hour, right? And because of the nature of the work that happens there. So you've got like, the, the, it's a totally different context. It's, and I didn't come from a healthcare background and it's taken me a while to really understand and get to grips with the complexity of some of the things that we have to deal with and grapple with inside of it. The Irish COVID-19 app is widely acknowledged as a success with a number of countries following Ireland's approach in how it was built from a privacy and a data protection perspective. Since Gar is one of the key people behind the development of the COVID-19 tracker app in Ireland, I asked him to tell us his story about how this world-leading tracker app was created. Uh, Right, so what is my story? So I got a phone call. I'm going to name and shame a few people along the way here. Um, I got a phone call on Paddy's Day last year. Right, so I can I can get it down to the hour and the minute nearly for this, from Tim Willoughby. Uh, well, actually, for, sort of from Fran Thompson first, and it was on the back of conversations that were happening through government. So Fran called me and said, "We we want to do something with um, with technology to support or augment contact tracing, the contact tracing work that was going on that was just starting up at this time." So we're now on the seventeenth of March. The contact tracing piece had probably started one to two weeks beforehand. So we're kind of in that time frame. So we're right at the beginning. I think the challenge at that point in time was that we could see the future very clearly because you could see what was happening in Italy. You were getting the pictures in the news. You could see what was happening in Wuhan. So you had that kind of context to it. So we could see that unless we got ahead of this, we were going to be stuck. And you're trying to figure out, and the, the I guess the question we got asked first is, how can technology help, right? So how can technology help identify people who are potentially have been exposed to COVID-19? And that was your the initial problem statement. And that wasn't building an app. So there was no brief to say you're going to build an app. The brief was to try and help with that problem. And as we began to explore it further, it became uh, the problem statement, I guess, got an awful lot clearer, which was how do you identify two people who are too close for too long where one of them has COVID-19, right? And I guess that the overarching piece or the, the other, the nuance to that was where one of them doesn't know the other, so where I can't say I know Derek and Derek and I can inform Derek or I can inform somebody else that Derek was near me because I just I don't know that person. We were on a bus, we were in public transport, we were on the street, we were in a restaurant, wherever it might be. So how can I do that? And that didn't again start with an app. It started with, well, what data could we use to be able to do this and how would we gather it? So what technology could we use? So automatically your head goes to the phone. So what's in your phone? Um, I've got location, so I've got a GPS sensor, so I know where somebody is. I've got Bluetooth, so I can, and we use that for headphones and a bunch of other things. So I've got a bunch of other capabilities the phone has. Then what data is around? So there's everything from 
like I mean, like I'll go walk you through the full list of things. So we looked at um, uh, information that telcos could potentially leverage. So how how could telecommunications companies help us with this? How could social media companies help us with this? Um, how could ad identifiers? So if you look at there's a few big like well the ad platforms are there, and anytime um, you're using something free, you're usually accepting the fact that your ad identifier, which is unique to you will be used to share this information with ad platforms so they can customize and tailor ads to you. So that that information is being used and there's a couple of platforms. So city-.ai does mapping of people's movements around the country using the ad identifiers as a way of tracking. So they're not tracking an individual, they're tracking the movement of people using the ad identifier. And that's stuff that's all freely given away. So we looked at a variety of different ways of doing that. What ended up happening in or around the same time was that we, um, everybody began to coalesce on the fact that actually we needed something that was pervasive. So you needed something that was available across lots of different things, but also something that wasn't going to be uh, invasive from a privacy perspective. So the initial, and we, so we built an initial version of the app. So this is version like 0.1, like at the very beginning, which used um, your location, your GPS coordinate. And this was to prove a point. This is us learning about the problem space to try and figure out what we, what we could do. So it used your GPS coordinate to put you in a geo time box, right? To say these two people were within uh, spitting distance of each other for uh, for more than fifteen minutes. So we we looked at that, and then we looked at it from so we looked at it from a technology perspective and said, yes, we can do that. Then we looked at the accuracy of something like that, and we went, it's not great. Then you look at the privacy of that and you go, oh, actually building it this way is a bit of a disaster because we're building up a giant graph of who was where and who met who, right? So from a privacy perspective, not great, gone, right? Out the door. But we learned by doing that what we could or couldn't do and it's finding those boundaries. And again, it's it's the start of the journey. You follow on from that and there was this whole piece of, well, do how do we do it in such a way that it's privacy preserving? Now, ultimately what we ended up doing was all you know is things about you. And when, so if you test positive, all you're doing is sharing information about yourself with somebody else. You're not sharing anybody else's information, just your own. And that's then up to you. So it's with your consent that you decide to do it. So if you decide not to do it, that's fine, right? There's no onus on you to do it. It's really, it's that engagement piece, you as a citizen and your responsibilities to protect others. So if you choose to share the data with the HSE and for the HSE to share it with everybody else. They don't know who you are, but you can inform them that you worked too close for too long and that you had COVID and therefore they should go and get tested. And that's ultimately where we ended up there, but it was quite a long, well, actually when I say it was a long road, it was 100 days from uh, the 18th of March was when we started until the app went into the app store. So it was ready to go at that point. And I think the the only, the, the reason we had to wait another 10 days is we were short of government at the time. If you remember back to uh, June, July last year, and we were right in that middle piece. And so we were waiting on the new government to come in and a cabinet decision to go live with the app. And hence, we ended up going live on the 7th of July, which was 110 days after we had started. And if you think about that, just the scope of what we were trying to do in that time frame and the speed at which we were going, I don't think anybody thought that we could that we could get there, but we managed to get there. And we were one of the first five countries to release an app like this at that point in time. And I think that was a, it's again, it's, and I don't want to overstate it because the app was, it played a part, but in behind that, you had the whole contact tracing infrastructure that was being set up to support it. And all the app is doing is augmenting that. So it's got to feed it and feed into that system, but it's not an end in and of itself. And I think that's one of the challenges with this is you see an observable piece and you say, oh, we've got an app. 
the app only works as part of an overall system. And if the system responds well and the app plays a part in that, great. But you can't do, you can't just look at it and say, oh, this is that bit. And this is the, the only thing that matters inside of it. But yeah, I mean, that that was a, like it was a fairly um, helter-skelter race to get there. A lot of long days, long evenings and things like that. But it, I guess it was, it was a really interesting one because it was a it was very much a cross governmental effort. So we had the HSE, the Department of Health, the Garda Shikona, Defence Forces, Central Statistics Office, uh, Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, and anybody else who could help. They helped. We had research groups who were kind of working in different areas. Uh, like we had lots of different people, and and you guys were involved as well. Like we had some consultations with IPOSI and with others along the way, and that informed a lot of it in terms of how do we make this. How do we build trust? How do we get people to use it? Because this was one of those, it was one of those technologies that only worked if we got broad adoption. And if we got broad, and I think it proved it's like we're up to 1.7 million people now, right? So it's it's a good chunk. It's not everybody, but we knew it was never going to be everybody. We knew there were people who were going to go, no, I don't want it. And again, it's with people's consent, with their cooperation, with their participation, and towards a shared goal, which was eliminating, co- well, I, protecting each other from COVID-19. That was really kind of the, the emphasis that was put on it. I also asked Gar about how privacy concerns regarding the app, either from the media or from various special interest groups, were responded to by the HSE while the app was being developed. <laughs> it's, and it's like, I mean, if you take the, so things like, I mean, the, the stuff that, it's tricky, like, so data protection impact assessment. Right, which um, we had more eyes on because within ten days of us starting, there were uh, there were headlines. Well, one of the headlines I found like there were some headlines that were hilarious because we were late. We'd still were like we're ten days in and we're late. I was like, late for what? <laughs> Who gave this deadline? Where did it come from? And I think one of the interesting pieces was that because um, and I I described to you how we used uh, location and other things to location and time to put people in geo time boxes. If that story had have hit at that time, like, so th- this was us exploring technology and that can solve a problem and learning. But if you're asked a question as to uh, what are you doing, we didn't have an answer because we didn't know how we were going to do it. So we couldn't answer the question. But if that had have gone out at the time, it was like HSE is building a giant tracking app to do it, which was one of the headlines that came out. And w- we don't know where it came from, but that was the immediate jump to its government trying to do something nefarious to uh, and to kind of compromise people's privacy. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. But there is a, like, I guess the challenge, and particularly within public service, is how do you actually explore spaces for innovation? Because there's an awful lot of learning, even in the stuff you don't do, and understanding why you don't do it, as opposed to settling too early and making decisions and going down that road. And we were trying to keep the optionality, uh, like to, to go different directions, but also understanding the constraints inside of it. So we were constantly going down that. And the DPIA ended up being a very, public document and very heavily scrutinized. Every privacy expert worth their salt in the country had a good look at it and had a good crack at pulling it apart and trying to figure out what was good, what was bad. And like anything, right? So it wasn't perfect, but we were telling everybody very clearly what we were collecting, why we were collecting it, where we were putting it, who had access to it, what we were going to do with it, how long we were going to keep it. And that's effectively what you want to do with that. And we avoided, I think one of the best things was we avoided the kind of the techno speak that goes with data protection in that it has its own language in terms of the way it describes things. And we tried to create it into a human readable thing, which is not easy. 
and there's there's one or two people like so Owen Harrison who was heavily involved in this. I mean, he can be credited massively for this with his facility with the English language, just to make it easy to read. So that's like there was things like that which are probably lessons going forward is about how how we can do these kind of things and to make it more easy to engage, to make it more easy for people to pick things up and trust. And just so I, I think a lot of it, I think the other piece was the we open sourced everything. So there was a create like there was a call and so we open sourced not with a view to sharing but with a view to transparency. So there was and we were open sourcing it so everybody could see what we were doing. Now ultimately that resulted in us so Northern Ireland, Scotland, Jersey, Gibraltar, and then five states in the US plus components of it are used in New Zealand. We've got eleven countries involved in using the code that we developed in Ireland for COVID tracker. And but that was kind of a side effect of it. But the original piece was um, how do we build trust? Well, there was a bunch of very senior and serious security guys and engineering guys who wanted to see the code, give them access to the code. There's nothing, there is no reason why a public sector body should create proprietary code in this day and age. It's it, it's a better way to work open sourcing it in that environment to be able to do it. And I think there was always the well, if we do it and somebody finds a bug, we we had people find bugs. We had people make recommendations. We had like security researcher in Trinity who contacted us and said, I would do it this way. And we could take that feedback and build it into what got released as the product. And that gives us an awful lot of um, comfort that we can actually, we've got like, it's more than just us. It's more than just the team that was building it and the team from Nearform and the team from ISAS. It's a bigger group of people who actually care about making this better. And they may have been looking at it for a different reason, but the feedback is there and it's it's clear that people wanted to get engaged and were kind of energized by the conversation. So they so they got involved. So that's been that's been another interesting piece in this, and hopefully it sets the scene for more stuff on that front in the future. I then asked Gar to give us an update on the patterns of usage of the app by the Irish public in response to the different phases of the pandemic, highlighting any particular challenges that people had to overcome but also any learnings he took from a public trust or citizen engagement perspective. Right. So um, I guess if you go from the launch, because the launch was like, that was incredibly successful. And I, I put that down. It wasn't just the app. It was the communication around it. It was the planning around it. It was the integration with the overall campaign. So there was a lot of stuff there that was really to do with um just how the whole thing was framed and how it fit into the overall pandemic response. So we had like over a million people within the first 48 hours. So it was like a huge uptake on it and and we spiked. So it got massive adoption at the start. And I think there was probably some um, some misunderstanding. So we like the, there was three bits to the app, right? We had decided and uh, I think you we had conversations about this kind of way back when about why uh, why did we have it? <clears throat> Our theory on the app was that, the, so the contact tracing functionality itself, it um, it effectively does nothing, right? Other than it's doing stuff in the background and it'll warn you when something goes wrong. And we looked at it and we said, okay, so unless the app has a reason for being other than this, it's not. it'll be less attractive to people. So we said, okay, so what can we do with the app to make it more useful? And we said, okay, so as an information channel to give people information, because we were, if you remember back to March last year, everybody was obsessed with the headline statistics on the news. How many cases, how many cases here, there, everywhere. And there was kind of a morbid fascination with that. So plugging in that information into the app and giving people a channel to it. So if you missed the news or you didn't, so you weren't looking up a website for it, we could just give it there. And it did a couple of things. So one was 
it was a useful, valuable source of information. The other was, it turns out for depending, because of the variety of phones that are out there, actually getting people to wake an app up is useful, right? Because it keeps it alive, it keeps it, it stops weird things happening in the background. So that was, so it kind of served two purposes. The other was that um, trying to bake into people's, uh, that the need to track symptoms and the need to be aware of symptoms, that was another piece to it. So the symptom tracker feature of it was there to try and help and support that, the consciousness of, um, do I have a cough? Do I have a fever? Do I have a shortness of breath? So it was the repetition around it and it was a constant, bringing a constant awareness back to it. So it was developing a habit uh, to do that. And that was again, um, I think for some people, it just became this daily thing that they just did. They opened it up, they checked in and said, no symptoms. And actually the, the one of the funnier, the, the, like it's when, when we go back to the design side of it. So we looked at it and we said, okay, so it's a symptom tracker. So you're tracking symptoms. Actually, the absence of symptoms is something that you want to track. Because when we did the first versions, the only thing you could say was I got symptoms, but you couldn't say, actually, I don't have symptoms. So when we were testing this from a user perspective, it turns out that people wanted it like to take a positive action, which was I'm okay, right? And the I'm okay, and so that, hence I, I'm okay, right? And we, we had subsequent feedback. And I, I guess there's, there's bits that we didn't implement that would have been really interesting to, to look at was actually, I'm not okay, but I don't have symptoms was one that we got back a lot through feedback from users. So I'm actually, I'm not okay with this COVID thing, right? But I don't have symptoms, but I'm not feeling okay. Because forcing somebody to say they're okay when they're not okay is, I hate saying it, it's not okay, right? So we had things like that that we never got a chance to really kind of dig into and explore, but as a way of really supporting people through the pandemic and finding different ways where we could kind of plug in and give them something, give give people, um, I guess part of it was kind of power and control. Like, so what can we do? So the, I guess the, the initial uh, piece was great, up and running, we're running and it's, we were going through a phase where uh, countries were turning this on across Europe and it ends up being, so we'd go on these um, e-health network calls uh, like with all the other EU countries who were jumping on board and we were always kind of top three, top five, somewhere up there in terms of percentage of population, onboarding, things like that. The problem with any of these numbers is that they're, it's actually difficult to get an accurate read, read on it because you've got a mix of Play Store, App Store. Like we don't, Because we don't know who you are and because we're not putting any onus on people to share information, we're kind of, we're basing it on proxy numbers. So we're saying, well, this many people downloaded, we've got this many people registration, registering, et cetera, et cetera. So you're, you're always kind of guided on that and it's never as precise as people want. So you get asked a question, you're like, is it, is it 1.2 or 1.3? I don't know. could be 1.4, right? Because people are choosing to use it in different ways and share different sets of information. And that changed over time. The other interesting piece of the, at the start was the, um, it was a thing around trust. So one of the things that we added in, which other countries didn't, and they, they it, it has come up in a number of research studies. And it was, we asked people and um, when they onboarded, we said, you can put your phone number in and you could put your phone number in that if, and if you got notified by the app, that that sent a message to the HSC and then somebody would call you and say, hey, are you okay? right? You've, you've shown up as a close contact. Now, what can we do? And that was really from the point of view of the HSE actively participating in your care. So we had somewhere around, it's pro, it's still north of 70%, but it was up around 77, 78% of people put the phone number in when they registered. You didn't have to, it wasn't mandatory, but as a proxy for trust, then it's an interesting way to look at it because people were comfortable enough to put a phone number in there. It stayed on your phone. It was only shared should you get a close contact and then somebody would call you. 
and then you you so it's actively kind of jumping in and trying to help you with a situation that's happened so i think that was an interesting piece um i guess that was all this all sounds great so far and then we had an issue with uh, batteries where there was um there was a bug and basically the app was running in the background and it started burning people's batteries um on all on android phones and so that was around august at that place. and it was uh that was another it, like it's if I take it that, uh, and I've always said this, and um, so people don't don't particularly like it, but the, so you pay for the software and the bugs are for free. <laughs> so this is one of those ones where uh, this bug came and nobody wants a bug like that. It's like, it's, so the way it gets characterized sometimes, it's like we actually engineer bugs in just because we're bad people, but bugs happen, right? In complex software system, bugs happen. And in this case, bug happened, it burned people's batteries. And then all of a sudden you saw stuff kicking off on Twitter. Um, we had addressed the issue probably, I think, within 24 hours. And it was a very complex one that required uh, Google had to do an update that had to go out to phones. And that took a while. Like there was a lot of stuff to it by the time we actually figured it out. But I, I think one of the things that happened as a well, as part of this process is that we actually had really positive engagements with Google and Apple. Like so tech, big tech platforms get um, get bashed quite a lot. And but from our perspective, with relation to this project and what we were doing with this then we had a pretty positive on the engineering side of it it was amazing right so the guys that we're dealing with are like really amazing engineers and they could help us and we could dig in and we could solve problems and it's very much a problem solving very much a collaboration and that was an ongoing thing and that still goes on today so there's still ongoing back and forth and as people are looking kind of roadmap and futures it's still there so that was probably the uh, the low light of it all was that and that caused uh, people to abandon people to delete the app people to do that now we won a lot of people back so if i roll forward we're kind of tipping along and it was kind of at 1.2 1.3 million for a good while and then uh, during the summer so when the digital COVID cert got released one of the features that we added, because one of the issues with the digital COVID cert is you either got it on paper in a letter, so it came through your letterbox, or it came in an email. And then what do I do with it and where do I put it? So if it came on paper, um, then how do I digitize it? And there were a lot of people coming up with creative solutions for doing that. And then if it came uh, by email, then what do I do with it as well? It's a PDF, where do I put it? As an addition to uh, the COVID tracker app, it seemed like a natural addition to it because it's framed as a pandemic response app. And that very much fits into that. So that's what we do. It's pandemic response. So in this case, this was a natural additional feature for us to add to it to say it's somewhere to put your your digital COVID cert. So you can present it if you have to and you can put it there. It stays on your phone. It doesn't go anywhere else. We don't know anything about it. We don't know like we don't know who you're showing it to or anything else, but it's there as a feature. And that caused a bump. So we saw probably somewhere between uh, 450 and 500,000 people new people come on the platform and begin to to use it and um and using the app in that way so we can see that that increase there i think that it goes back to the decision we made to try and make it useful so when you make an app useful and you're building it and we know this from our german colleagues who this at the start when they launched their app it literally just did contract tracing and that's it so there was no observable function you didn't know if it was working or not working it was just there on your phone and they had significant problems and one of the reflections they had was that they would if they were to do it all over again, they would have gone a different direction to give it to give it a utility, because it's um, and it's amazing because from an engagement perspective and even from a 
from a citizen engagement perspective, it became kind of a talking point. So people would open it up and look at it. They'd be looking at the statistics and it was a conversation. And particularly when we put in the, the lower level um, metrics around what was happening in your townland, what was happening down in certain areas around the country. So that, that was all kind of part and parcel. So it mix of good and bad. And then I think in the middle, we um, like the the statistics got out of date, but we had a cyber attack. So you may you may or may not have noticed that one. So we had a cyber attack in the middle of it and it kind of, um, it just like the, the variety of issues that we discovered along the way there. And it's with relation to uh, things that were connected together and how we share information. So that, that kind of put it, um, kicked us to one side at the moment because it was obviously priorities to get the health service back running and working again. And the app kind of got pushed off to one side, which was absolutely the right thing to do. But it's funny how people became, a lot of the feedback we got through HSC Live and through Twitter was around, well, the statistics are wrong. We want up-to-date numbers. So people were actually demanding it and kind of querying it. And it had become something useful and kind of part of people's lives, which was an interesting piece that we didn't foresee. Next, I asked Gar to give us a flavour of how the data obtained from the app has been used successfully in areas such as contact tracing and also the potential future uses of this data. Yeah, like, I mean, so far we've got, um, like, it's north, like, it's funny because, again, it goes to, um, at different phases in the pandemic, it served different purposes, right? So if you remember kind of January this year, contact tracing uh, was overwhelmed with the caseload. So at that point in time, there were two ways of notifying people, right? So it was either notified via the app, right? So the app would notify people or you were notifying your own contacts. So you physically had to do it yourself. And if you were doing it yourself, you couldn't you couldn't uh, notify somebody you didn't know if you had no contact information for them. So it served different purposes throughout different phases of this. Like the, the in terms of how the information is used, like the we've had probably north of twenty thousand people who have tested positive who are app users and uploaded it, and we've had like the the numbers that get reported in the app understate the number of people who've received close contact notices. And that's to do with the privacy controls that are put in place. So we don't know all the stuff that happens. So we know, so we report the numbers that we know about. We don't report stuff that we uh, like that we're speculating on, but it's probably somewhere between kind of 15 to 25% higher than the number than the number that's in the app. So you're looking at, I think we're reporting 40,000, but it's probably 40, 40, like 50,000, 55,000 is probably where it's at, but we can't say, right? So that's, so don't take those numbers as gospel. It's somewhere north of that number those people get notified so we like all we know about it at that point is uh, that they've been told if they put a phone number in we can contact trace them as in we can actively go and contact trace them so there's forty thousand people who can be actively contact traced that is we can make a phone call we can find out we can help them we can book tests we can do all of that and i think one of the biggest things that kind of um and again it's it's funny how these memes kind of play out is that um it's how many people test positive becomes um it becomes kind of the 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 nirvana like we 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 need people who've tested positive who've been identified by the app as proof it's like proof of life or proof of existence or putting the hands in the wound it's like one of those things and actually so if the so we know that the app is picking up people it should pick up so does it pick up um so you'll get somebody on the phone saying uh, everybody in my house has, uh, has been notified by the app and they've tested positive well that's as it should be because it's picking up domestic contacts 
And that's anecdotally through stuff that gets up by call center agents. So you're getting situations like that where the app is picking up. So they're true positives. It's picked them up and it should pick them up because that's what happens. The key is, if um, is it picking them up and notifying them quickly? So that's kind of the analysis we're working through at the moment. It's like, how fast is it doing it? How well is it doing it? And again, that relates to at what point in the pandemic. If we've got very low numbers, people on the phone are much faster than an app. If you've got very high numbers and you can't make all the phone calls, then the app is much faster than no call at all, right? So it's kind of situations like that. I think the the analysis that we're doing at the moment, because we're doing an efficacy analysis on the app, which was delayed as a result of the cyber attack. So we were kind of at the middle and we were kind of ready to publish in, or we were planning to publish in the summer, but it's kind of been pushed out. It's going to be very interesting to see how it's actually added to it. So how many have been app-only contacts were identified, like things like that. So the European Centre for Disease Control has defined a metric set that uh, countries can report against so we can do some comparative analysis internationally. The challenge is for a lot of countries, they didn't have metrics. So they didn't have any way of measuring some of these things. So we probably have the, the most complete set of metrics that give us an idea of how it's working while preserving the privacy of the people who are using it, right? And that that was kind of the trade-off here between the two. So I'd say um, I, I'm really interested just to see wh- where this plays a part. And the, I guess the, the one areas where we know it, it really works is at those high caseload numbers where you don't have the ability or capacity to do it. It becomes a very, very useful tool at that point in time at low numbers, not so much. At high numbers, very much so. And then for different settings, so as as you begin to open up, because I, I think everybody was looking in the middle of lockdown. At lockdown, you've actually reduced, like the purpose of a lockdown is to reduce the number of interaction between individuals. And as so as you do that, um, by default, the number of contacts you pick up will decrease. As we begin to re- lift restrictions and open things up again, you've got more interactions between more people and you're going to have more interactions between people who don't know each other. That's where that plays out. So actually mapping this and from an epidemiology perspective, actually understanding the different phases, the different constraints and restrictions and the behavior around it, that was that's going to be something that will play out as part of this analysis. And I'd say a bunch of uh, research reports that will pop out post this. There's about 10 PhD theses st- stuck in the middle of the data that's inside of this for anybody listening who is interested in doing work in that area. It's going to be a fascinating one to kind of play it out because it's data that nobody else has ever had an opportunity to, to have before to go look at those kind of things. So yeah, it's um, the data side of it is fascinating as well because we have so little personal data. <laughs> like it's like you're doing this all on uh, connections, reports and rec- records of connections of things, but without any idea who um, who the index patient was or what the connection between the two participants is. And I think that was one of the, the biggest challenges from a public health perspective is, and I remember having a conversation with Sarah Doyle, who was leading up the public health side of it. And uh, so week, I think it was week three of this, I said, right, so we'll have an index patient. And week four, I was saying, so Sarah, we're not going to have an index patient. And she's like, how can I do contact tracing without an index patient? And I was like, well, here's how it works. And some of it was... Uh, Nobody had ever thought about doing contact tracing without an index patient. So it's trying to get your head around that if you're a public health doctor. It feels like it's, this is like magic. It's like black magic. It's even worse, right? It's the it's the worst kind of thing. But I think what goes in, what, what we take going forward is these kind of technologies are going to allow us to do public health interventions in a very different way in the future. 
provided we can kind of, again, it goes back to that policy piece about thinking how we integrate these kind of ideas into this world. Like that's going to be a, that's going to be a very interesting one as we go forward out of this and what, what lessons we take from it. I then switched our attention to the next phases of the pandemic and whether GAR can see utility for the app in terms of what's coming down the tracks, particularly in terms of future COVID-19 variants of concern or indeed for future pandemics. No, I, I think some of it will be um, it's understanding how to tune it um, because we we put it in and we were pretty conservative in terms of what we considered a close contact. And I think as things have evolved, it's the ability to kind of tune that and make those changes to so we can pick up more or less things relative to what we're trying to do and the problem we're trying to solve. And so uh, particularly with things like variants of concern. So variant of concern comes in and the two meters gets thrown out the window. It's like, you, it's like uh, 15 seconds at like three meters and all of a sudden you would go, ah, oh, we've got an outbreak of Delta. So it's kind of, though it's sorry that, and that's, I'm, <laughs> those numbers are completely fictitious and I made them up to exaggerate for effect, right? They're, it's not the public health guidance on this, but the ability to deal with things like variants of concern and deal with the change in things over time, I think that's, that's where this will go because it'll become more fine grained and will become, um, I, I guess it's, it's how do we feed more intelligence back into the system that if we pick something up like that how do we use the information and blend it with the other sets of information to preserve privacy but just enrich the data that we've got to try and identify outbreaks to try and identify super spreading events and things like that it's like how do we do that and so i think from an app perspective like the way we've built it we can do a lot of those things but it's really that it's it's the readiness to do it like because ever like i mean the at the moment, like there's so much work and there's so many people and we're kind of, we're 18 months into this now. And I think none of us saw, it was funny because like at the start, uh, I was having conversations with colleagues in the UK and in Europe and the the idea, like, so from the guys there, they set a clear expectation that this is 18 months to two to three years was kind of the, and I think at the start when we, in March last year, it was like, oh, by September we'll be okay. And it was like, in my head, I was going by September next year, but we're now like 18 months into this. There's a lot of tired bodies. It's like, it's really, it's how do we sustain it? So how do we move into, it's kind of pandemic as usual territory because we're having to deal with this. Like, I don't think anybody expected us to be in this situation that we're in right now. So we, we've built these pieces of infrastructure and it's how do we scale it? How do we change and adapt as things are changing slightly, but do it in a way that, um, I guess it's the sustainability of something like this. And I think that's, so I'm I'm involved in the Linux Foundation Public Health Project, which is we had contributed the app into that. And part of the work on that is looking at things like a pandemic response toolkit. So what do we need to be able to do to respond to things like a, a respiratory virus, a pandemic based on that? Versus if it was, say, it was a different kind of pandemic, what would that look like? So there's beginnings of work like that's kind of in that space. And that's going to be interesting just to see how that plays out down the road. And I think that's the future for this is not us in the HSE doing all of the work and all the lifting on it. It's the collaboration that has kind of unfolded as a result of this in that we're now part of a community both across Europe who are all building and sharing and exchanging both information, exchanging know-how techniques, uh, like the do's and don'ts, recipes, whatever it might be. But particularly for the bigger challenges that we face, that kind of collaboration internationally, which typically was quite, 
like it had been I'd been involved in a bunch of European projects pre-HSE and they were always quite bureaucratic and they were always quite long like we stood up we've done two EU-wide integrations of systems both for the digital COVID cert and for COVID tracker in a time frame that would be absolutely like unbelievable if you were doing standard EU projects which is usually to do like any kind of interoperability is like 10 years so to stand these things up and each one was stood up in like less than three months so and it's to we now know that we can we also have participants so we work with guys in New Zealand guys in Australia with guys in Singapore so we're getting a much broader base of kind of people feeding into it when we open sourced it we're to, we took components that were developed in New Jersey and integrated into the app, into the COVID tracker app like so we we took we've taken pieces from other people's and kind of rolled it into what we do and so this level of sharing particularly where we're all solving a common problem i think that's that that's the way we should be framing our response to some of these things is to kind of think bigger than just us doing all the lifting or all the running on this or that the irish government doing it it's like this is a, a like a global effort and we can plug into a global way of responding to it iposi is interested in roles for patients and patient advocates in these types of innovative and collaborative efforts. So I asked Gar whether he saw some opportunities specifically for patients in the development of digital health solutions in the future. That's a good question. And I'd never thought of it from, um, like we, we had done a lot of work on um, citizen engagement pieces prior to, because it, like this wasn't particularly patient focused, if you like. So it was kind of more broadly, like anybody living in Ireland who, was kind of living here. So citizens, other people who are in the country who may not be citizens. So I, I think we had probably done that early on from a COVID tracker perspective. Uh, it's a, do you know what? I don't think I've got a good answer to that, Derek, but I think it's definitely one, like we, we've been trying to figure out as well, like it's like, how do we do it? And actually in the context of say the Linux Foundation stuff, I think there's very obviously ways that we can do it. and. My, my, my next call after this will be discussing some of that in terms of where we're going on that front. And that's definitely one that, that it's worth pursuing. I think obviously the uh, so patient forums and things like that inside of the HSE and they serve a role, but actually uh, on a, from a co-design perspective and bringing people in together, I, I think there's definitely a role for this into the future. And I think that's like that user-centered design approach of actually building things. I think that will, it's, we're moving in that direction. So we're moving down that road. So I, I think that's gonna be the, the important piece is trying to figure out how do we do it. So so I don't know, but uh, I think I'm, I'm certainly open to it. And I think um, it's definitely one worth exploring. Bringing the conversation to a close, I asked Gar what he feels the Irish Health Service needs to put in place to build on the progress made by the COVID-19 app, as well as how the digital world is evolving internationally. His answer was pretty intriguing. Yeah, it's so it's one of those things that uh, I think this space, um, particularly uh, on the technology side of it, is evolving so fast now that I think um, so making predictions about which direction we go and, and and where we end up on that. You're always I mean, you're on a hiding to nothing there, right? Because it's I could say, oh, yeah, we need to do this and this. I think uh, there's some critical pieces. Identity is a critical thing. So being able to say, you are you. So Derek is Derek. That's a key bit. So it brings in both. Uh, so things like my ID and the use of that. 
things like the individual health identifier, they're enabling pieces inside of it. So do they directly improve the service for somebody? They indirectly, they're enabling pieces. They're cross-cutting things that cut across everything that we do that make it easier to do that. I think some of the stuff that will, that like coming down the road, if you look at uh, anything where um, citizens are gathering information about themselves that they want to share with the health service, I think that's going to be a critical piece. It's about how do we deal with that piece of information, right? How do we, so you're interested in your own health first and foremost. So you're interested in supporting yourself and figuring that out. And again, it's that piece of like, are we doing everything for you or how much are you doing for yourself? I think there's going to be, most people are interested in in looking after themselves and figuring that out. What do you do with that data? How you how do you share it? Um, how do you give it to somebody else? And then how do you manage once it's gone and once you do something with that, then it's uh, how is it going to be treated? Uh, who has access to it? All those concerns that you've got to do with privacy. And that brings in things like consent management. So we've, and we need some of these enabling pieces in place. I think the way consent has been thought of and the way data has been thought of uh, up until now is very much on that kind of, um, I guess it's the paradigm that we have had up until now, which is we put it all together and then we give anybody who access to who needs it. But we know that that's problematic, right? So we know when we do that, it's problematic. If you look at um, any of the decentralized models that are beginning to emerge outside in five years time in a decentralized way, uh, and actually, so Tim Berners-Lee is doing work, not specifically in healthcare, but so the father of the internet, his next thing is reinventing the internet to make to create a privacy preserving internet where basically you've got um, bubbles of data that you own and you can allow an app to use that data, but you own the data and you control that data and you control access to that data. And again, that's, like that that model for it would totally change the way you rethink about how you deliver something to somebody and how you share, how you manage consent, what you do with it. So there are things there that I think as we see the technologies evolving, we move away from having to centralize and bring everything together, which comes with its own challenges into putting people in control of it. But you also hit some hard challenges about, uh, so what happens if you get hit by a bus? Like quite literally hit by a bus and an ambulance arrives and you're not conscious and you can't do anything with it. Now, Now what do I do? What do I need to be able to do in order to deal with that situation? And there are a lot of complex scenarios that come up in healthcare that don't come up in other places. It wouldn't be the same dealing with a bank. So dealing with the fact that this is a life or death situation and the timeliness of access to that information is critical. How do we deal with that particular situation there and then? So I think it's going to be a mix of figuring out what people are comfortable with, um, what we can do, and I, I think actually that the, the framing of the privacy by design piece, so there's kind of a, the way we, because uh, we were looking back over stuff to do with COVID tracker and some other pieces, and there's kind of three lenses that you look at it through. So privacy by design. So if you bake that in at the start, it's, and it's a set of principles that you follow and you're constantly looking at decisions you make through that lens. Accessibility by design to make sure it's use, useful to and usable by anybody who needs to use it. And we did a lot of work with uh, National Council for the Blind Ireland, uh, their labs, and we did around making things accessible and working it through that. And then ethical by design. So is it, does it stack up? Should we be doing the things that we're doing? And ethical is is more than just the privacy piece. And I think they become design criteria as we look at how we design systems inside of it. And I think if we're going down that road, regardless of the technologies that we choose, it kind of you've got the right framing and the right way of guiding it and it facilitates that and each one of them requires dialogue and connection and um 
communication with patients with uh, and with people about how do we do it because it's all well and good us thinking it's fine because and like there's the techno utopian people who are like ah it's we just add technology and everything will be better i i don't believe that i i think we can make it far far worse if we do it wrong so and we've proven that over and over again through the years so the focus for me is kind of looking at well what do we need to do to make some of this happen but then down the road there are things coming and then how do we leverage those technologies the some of the monitoring stuff like some of the the startup technology that's coming that we're seeing right now it's phenomenal and it would totally change the way we look at doing some of these things but it's how do you put that in the hands of somebody who can use it and if you're putting that in the hands of a patient it's like, well, what's the bar here? Like, I mean, how tech, it goes to tech literacy. Like, I mean, how literate do you need to be to use it? It's all well and good. It's like, it might be the best thing in the world, but actually is it giving you the feedback you need? Is it, uh, does it help you in the way, make the progress that you're trying to make? And a lot of times the, the companies building it are building core technologies that need to be kind of fitted into this world. And they haven't quite figured that out yet. So I, I think that's one of the things that hopefully we can help them with. Is, is trying to fit that in and trying to answer those questions and trying to build the engagement around it. Gar, really appreciate it. That's been fabulous. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks a million, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe. And for further information on IPOSI's work, go to www.ippoosi.ie.